All right, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts here on the Listener's Commentary. And this recording, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. And the Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project designed to provide down-to-earth, blue-jeans kind of Bible teaching so that we can learn and live the Bible right where we live in the midst of our everyday lives. Now, in this recording, as I said, we're in Acts chapter 14, and we're well into Paul's first missionary journey. Paul spent the first bit of his missionary journey on preaching on the island of Cyprus. He sailed north from there and traveled inland into what is now central Turkey, into the region of Galatia. And at the end of chapter 13, he has preached in the city of Antioch in Galatia, had good return in the synagogue until uh, the Jews opposed him and stirred up trouble for him. So he turned his attention to the Gentiles, preached to the Gentiles until there was a much more intentional effort to do away with him and Barnabas. And so they have left Antioch of Pisidia and they've headed down the road to Iconium. Iconium is about... 90 or so miles southeast of Antioch. It sat on the major east-west highway through this part of the world. The road was called the Via Sebast, the Sebastian Way. And it linked uh, Syria in the east to Ephesus in the west. And that meant that uh, Iconium was really a major commercial city for the area. And the region also was fertile and thus was good for growing crops. It was a well-watered area. And so the city of Iconium was prosperous and growing. And so Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium. And here's what happens beginning in Acts 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Greeks. And so, as was Paul's custom, he begins in the synagogue to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. This also provides a great place that's ready to hear the gospel that is going to be mixed of both Jews and Gentiles. So, he starts there, and the result of his preaching is a large number of people believe, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, well, here's what seems to be the pattern developing so far on this first missionary journey. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands." So Paul and Barnabas' preaching ministry has an initial super good return, but those Jews that don't believe in Jesus the Messiah work with some of the Gentiles, probably some of the Gentile rulers in town, uh, created a difficult situation for Paul and Barnabas, created some opposition to him, but it didn't dissuade them. Did you notice verse 3? Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. So there's a good return of ministry. Opposition has now been stirred up. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas decide to settle in and get to work and continue preaching the word of God. And so we don't know how long. Luke simply tells us they spent a long time there. Uh, preaching and speaking with boldness. And not only that, that the Lord was confirming their message through miracles. And notice the way Luke writes this, that the Lord was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be performed by them. 
this is the consistent testimony of Scripture that miraculous abilities, in other words, abilities given to individuals like Paul and Barnabas so that they could perform miracles at their word as part of their ministry, consistently in uh, the New Testament is really a credentialing sort of thing. Those abilities serve to testify or authenticate that indeed these spokesmen are speaking on behalf of God himself. And so they're preaching, they're performing miracles, there's people believing, there's opposition, and they've settled in for a long time there. Well, the story continues to unfold in verse 4, and it says this, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, while others with the apostles. And so the city is increasingly being split between the Jews who opposed the, the preaching of the gospel and uh, the apostles. And the city is being split. People are taking sides now. And the result was that there was now going to be an attempt on Paul and Barnabas' life, verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the opposition grows in intensity. There's now a, an attempt to seize them, mistreat them, and even stone them to death by the Jews. Somehow Paul and Barnabas became aware of it. And so they fled down the road to Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. So the cities, towns, and villages in and around this region of Lystra and Derby. And notice Luke specifies that it's the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby. Lyconia is the old territorial name for the region that has now been annexed into Roman Galatia. But the local citizens were still sensitive to their heritage and their history, and so they could be thought of as being a part of Lyconia. And in fact, we'll see in the following story that they still speak their local dialect, even though they're familiar with Latin and Greek. So, beginning in verse 8, Luke now focuses on Paul's work in Lystra, specifically from verses 8 through 20. Luke is going to focus on Paul and Barnabas' ministry in the city of Lystra. And then from there, he'll briefly record what happens after that, and then a return trip through these very same cities. And so, for the next 12 or so verses, we get a snapshot of a few things that happened while Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Lystra. Now, Lystra was a relatively young city, fairly new. It was established in the year 26 BC by the Roman Emperor Augustus. It was then made a Roman colony in the year AD 6 to really be kind of a fortified city to the east to deal with any issues that might come up in that region. It's really the furthest eastern fortified city in the region. And so it is a Roman colony, and yet it's off of the, the main road and really a fairly small and not a major city of any sort. It's about 20 miles south of Iconium. One important fact for us as uh, readers of the New Testament, even though it's not a major Roman city, it's an important city for us in that Lystra is the hometown of Paul's future ministry partner, Timothy. And it would seem highly likely that it's on his first missionary journey when Timothy's family first hears the gospel. 
So here we are in Lystra, and Luke is going to focus on two specific events that happen while Paul and Barnabas are there doing ministry, two events that show very different reactions of the people and in some ways show how fickle people can be. Here's what happens in the city of Lystra, verse 8. In Lystra, a man was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He had been disabled from his mother's womb and had never walked. This should... uh, have some bells going off in your mind to a parallel story way back in Acts chapter 3 when Peter healed a man who had never walked as well. So now we get the parallel to that in Paul's case. And so we meet a man who has been lame from birth. Verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. And Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. And so Paul sees this man. This man is listening to Paul preach. Paul can tell that this man has faith in Jesus. And so Paul invites him to be healed. Stand up on your feet. The man takes him at his word, does, and immediately is he is healed. Well, the crowd, when they see this, react superstitiously somewhat, but because of their history, they react to Paul and Barnabas in a very unique sort of way. They mistake them for gods. Look what happens. Verse 11. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, remember the note I said that they're still kind of fond of their local history and heritage, and thus even though they know Latin and Greek, they still oftentimes speak the their historical native dialect. So that's what they're doing here. They're speaking in the Lyconian language. And what are they saying? Well, they're saying this, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. And so the crowd sees Paul heal this lame man. And their immediate reaction is to think that somehow these two gods, Zeus and Hermes, have taken on human form and have come among them. Now, why do they respond this way? Well, because of a local legend. In fact, there was a first century poet by the name of Ovid who told the legend, recounted the legend of Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, depending on whether you're using the Roman names or the Greek names. I told the, the, the legend of how these two gods had come into this very region where we're at in Paul's ministry, took on the form of uh, human beings, and traveled through town, knocking on doors, um, looking for a place to stay, and were turned away over and over and over again until they finally came to an elderly couple on the outskirts of town. Uh, The couple's name was Philemon and Bacchus, and they welcomed them in. And so, in honor of their hospitality and in judgment on the rest of the city, the people were flooded by water and the city was destroyed and only these two, Philemon and Bacchus, were uh, allowed to live. And so now, all of a sudden, here comes Paul and Barnabas. They perform a great miracle and the assumption of the townsfolk is they're back and they don't want to be destroyed. And so they immediately respond to them as, Zeus and Hermes. And notice they're calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Zeus is the chief god of the Greek or Roman pantheon. Um, And Hermes is 
the messenger of the gods. He was the god of the orators, the chief speaker. And that's the reason uh, Paul is called Hermes is because he's the one that speaks the most. He's the primary speaker for uh, he and Barnabas. And so they, they want to honor these, these men who they believe are the gods so that they don't make the same mistake as happened in the past. And so one of the priests of Zeus decide, let's, let's make this right. And so look at verse 13. Moreover, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds in honor of Zeus and Hermes. And so they bring an oxen, or it actually sounds like plural, right? Brought oxen and garlands. And so several oxen with garlands draped over their necks in the customary way to prepare them for sacrifice. And they're going to bring these oxen and they're going to offer them in honor of who they assume are the two gods that have returned to their region. Uh, but, verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their robes, rushed into the crowd, and cried out, saying, and so Paul and Barnabas get word of this. They immediately react with a, a visible sign of their displeasure, so they tear their robes. In other words, they just, at the collar of the robe, they tear the robe. And this was a symbolic action that signified both displeasure and grief. It was a way to communicate. Remember, these people are now speaking in the Lyconian language. They're all worked up. So let's just use symbolic action to display how horrified we are that you would consider doing this. And so they, they tear their robes and they cry out saying... And they're going to give not really a sermon. This is sort of an ad hoc moment, but it's sermon-like. It's like a, a little mini sermon explaining why they should not offer sacrifices to them. And so this is what they say in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so their initial appeal is, no, no, we're just human beings. We have the exact same nature to you. We're actually bringing you good news. That's what the gospel means, bringing you good news that says you can turn from these useless things. That word useless literally means empty. These things are empty. Worshiping these false gods, it's empty. So we're calling you to turn from these empty things to the living God. So here's these empty things, these empty religions, these empty rituals about these empty gods, and we're calling you to turn to the living God. And notice who the living God is. He's the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What's significant about this is we'll see a more full-bodied version of this in Acts chapter 17 when we get Paul speaking to the Areopagus in Athens. But there and here, Paul very much contextualizes his message. If you compare this with what Paul said in Acts 13 when he was preaching in the synagogue, we see the differences. There in the synagogue, where it's primarily Jews and people who are familiar with the scriptures, he tells the story of Israel working up to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises. But here, when it's pagans who don't understand the scriptures and don't have that context, he doesn't start there because they wouldn't get it. He starts with creation and God is creator and he's going to appeal from creation to God in an effort to get them to turn from these things to the living God. So he starts with creation and in verse 16 he goes on and says, in past generations this God the living God, the creator God, permitted all the nations to go their own way. 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so Paul basically appeals to them that there is one true God. He's the creator God. And the evidence for him is the way he cares for creation and the way he cares for you by caring for creation. And this, again, is a consistent refrain in the Bible that creation, nature, is an indicator, is a witness of the existence of God and of the character of God. We see this, for example, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And he goes on to talk about that, that that creation itself, the sun, the moon, and the stars, points towards God's glory, that he exists and that he's he's got power and he's majestic. We see the same thing, for example, in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that creation testifies to God's eternal uh, power and divine nature. So here, in keeping with this understanding of things, Paul is appealing to these people to say, no, we are merely humans. Uh, we want to appoint you to the living God, and he's the one who took care of you by caring for creation. Verse 18 says, Even by saying these things, only with difficulty did they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to him. The crowds here are so convinced that the gods have come once again among them, and they don't want to make the same mistake as in that legend that uh, it takes a lot of work for Paul and Barnabas to convince them, don't do it, don't sacrifice the oxen, we're just human beings, let's talk about the one true God. And so, finally, they convince them that, no, don't do this. Now, Luke wraps up that little scene and then quickly transitions in verse 19 and 20 to another scene from Paul's time in the city of Lystra. It is almost the exact opposite scene, and it shows really how impressionable people can be and how fickle they are. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. So somewhere in in Paul's ministry in Lystra, the people want to worship he and Barnabas's gods. Sometime later, some Jews come from Antioch, where he had preached, and from Iconium, and they're making a good trip. By the time they arrive here, right, they're, they're 110, 120 miles from Antioch to get to Lystra. They've traveled a long way because they want to defend the truth. They're convinced Paul and Barnabas aren't preaching the truth, so they come, they win over the crowds uh, and accuse Paul and Barnabas of preaching blasphemy, and so they stone Paul, which is a typical Jewish way of putting them to death. I imagine that the Jews were the ones leading the charge in this, probably the ones mostly throwing the rocks in this case. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. But the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Now, there's been all sorts of speculation and debate. Was Paul really dead? Was he just knocked out? Obviously, we're not told. He was he was in a bad enough way that the people of Lystra and the, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they thought he was dead. They drug him out of the city just to leave him for dead. So whatever situation he was in, they assumed he was dead. And then the disciples in the city, these new believers, stand around him 
And Paul gets up and goes back into the city. And then it says the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Now, there's a lot uh, of things I would like to know about this. But I'll tell you what, if Paul wasn't dead, there's still hints in this uh, this episode that a miracle of some sort happened. If he was that banged up to uh, convince everybody that he was actually dead, and then he gets up and goes right back into the city, and then the next day he travels a good distance all the way to Derby, uh, it seems like maybe God, at, at bare minimum, healed him from the stoning. Perhaps he actually was dead or near death, and God didn't permit him to die, raised him from the dead. Whatever happened, uh, Paul somehow uh, recovered almost immediately from this near-death experience. And the next day, he left with Barnabas to go down the road to Derby. Now, in the next handful of verses, verses 21 through 28, Luke really just summarizes things quite quickly, wraps up this trip and their return trip back to Antioch. And so here in the last seven verses, we, we really get Paul and Barnabas's return trip at the end of the first missionary journey. Here's what happens, verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel in that city, that is in Derby, and had made a good number of disciples. Quick summary, they preached in Derby, they made disciples there, they then reversed course, went back to Lystra, then back to Iconium, and then back to Antioch. And so they reversed the direction and they went back and visited all these fledgling churches in these towns where they had just made a bunch of new disciples. And so they go back to check on them, to establish them, and to make sure things are going well for them. This takes an immense amount of courage if you just stop and think about it. When Paul was last at Lystra, he was stoned nearly to death. Um, the people who were responsible for stirring that up were people from Iconium and Antioch. And so he's going right back to the places where he knows there's hostility, where he knows people want him dead, but it doesn't keep him from going there. And so he returns to Lystra, he returns to Iconium, he returns to Antioch. And what's he doing? Well, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And so he returns, meets with the disciples, teaches, preaches, encourages them, exhorts them to be faithful to Jesus. And he says, here's a summary of his key message on this return trip. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul obviously has credibility to say this. He has suffered opposition at Antioch. He has suffered opposition at Iconium. He was stoned nearly to death at Lystra. And so he's had many tribulations along this whole route. And so now he reminds them, look, you saw it happen in me. It's probably going to happen to you. Don't be surprised by it. Tribulations come with the territory. In fact, it, we, we have to experience these difficulties and these hardships in order to enter into the kingdom of God, that the, the pathway into God's kingdom is paved with hardship and tribulation. And so he tells them it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, in addition to encouraging them and reminding them that things can get hard, he does one other thing really important for these churches in these towns. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so not only does he exhort and encourage them, but he establishes uh, leadership for them to protect them and to watch over them and to lead them and to to care for them, he establishes elders in each church. And so now each church is going to have a body of elders who's going to be responsible for taking care of those churches. 
that raises really an important question. Like these churches are young, the disciples are new. How in the world can there be elders that are really ready and prepared to lead these churches? And obviously we're going to have to speculate and guess. We're not told for sure. But one of the things we need to remember is the, the seeds for these churches grew out of the synagogue. And so there are um, there are Jews in these churches who grew up both with uh, an understanding of God's will, an understanding of the morals of God's people, and an understanding of God's scriptures, right? And so there's people who know God and know the scriptures, and now what they've come to realize is that Jesus is, is his Messiah, and they're following him. And so they at least have that ability to be wise, godly, uh, devout caretakers for these churches. And so that's my suspicion, is that a lot of these elders derived primarily from uh, the, the, the Jews, the Jewish leaders who came to faith in Jesus as Paul preached the gospel in these cities. And so he appoints elders in each of these churches. He appoints them with prayer and fasting. So they fast, they pray, and they commend them to the Lord. They entrust them to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is ultimately the one that's in charge of his church. You guys are working with him to, to care for these churches on his behalf. And so he entrusts them to the Lord to, to watch over and to care for these churches. And with that then, they passed all the way through Pisidia. They came down to the coast in Pamphylia, verse 25. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Italia was the harbor town for Perga. And when we came to this region, it didn't mention Italia and it didn't mention any ministry in Perga. May have done it there, just was wasn't uh, focused for Luke as he told the story, but now it mentions they preached in Perga. Then they went down to the harbor town of Italia. And from there, verse 26, they sailed back to Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch from which they had come. So they sailed to Antioch where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And so they go back to Antioch. They've been gone for a couple of years and they uh, return home to their home church in Antioch, the church that had sent them out, and they're going to check in with that church. And so verse 27, when they had arrived at Antioch and gathered the church in Antioch together, they, be, they were reporting all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I love that description of their ministry. They reported not what they had done, but what God had done with them through them, in them, and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's significant, that uh, it wasn't just to the Jews, it was directly to the Gentiles. And a lot of their ministry focused on the Gentiles, and the Gentiles now were coming into the new family of Jesus. And so they reported this to the church, and they spent a long time there in Antioch with the disciples. And as we wrap up this segment of Paul's first missionary journey, I think I think the culminating message that Paul gives to these churches as he returns on the visit really is the important theme we need to pay attention to, to this segment of the story. And that theme is really expect hardships. Expect hardships. Paul had experienced hardships all along the way. He arrived at Antioch sick and in difficulty. There was opposition and he was forced out of town there. He was forced out of town in Iconium. He was nearly stoned to death in Lystra and so on. He had experienced hardships. 
He tells the churches on the return trip, you got to stay faithful. It's not going to be easy. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Hardships are part of the territory, all different kinds of hardship, whether it's opposition and persecution, whether it's sickness and suffering, expect hardships. And Paul's qualified to tell us this, not only because of what he experienced on this journey, but when you read later in Paul's life, when he writes 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and following, Paul just lists off all these different hardships that he experienced in his service and following of Jesus. And hardships just kind of go with the territory. And really, that's the message I think we should take away from this. One of the key themes here is that hardships and affliction are just part and parcel of the Christian life. They don't mean that God has abandoned you. They don't mean that you're not in the center of God's will or anything like that. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on this journey by the Holy Spirit, and yet they experienced all sorts of hardship. Hardships of all forms come as a manifestation of evil and the brokenness of the universe, and they're part of what God's people endure in their fellowship with Jesus and their desire to work with Jesus to make all things new. And so as we go about following Jesus, expect hardships. Jesus said to us, take up your cross and follow me. It just comes with the territory.